Well, turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 5. We're in a series right now uh, called Family Matters 2, and probably just a few weeks left. We're on week 12, by the way, so sometimes the sermon series can tend to go a little long. But this, this one's important. Well, I guess they're all important. Uh, this one's extra important uh, because this one of the, it's one of the areas that I see Satan destroying uh, the church is through the family. And I see, um, of course, with what we do as a church and ministry, it is so critical, the children's ministry, the youth, as we raise kids up to follow God. Because how many of you know that what happens in their childhood, what happens in their, their youth and young adult, it is going to shape them for the rest of their life. It's very critical. It's very crucial. I almost think sometimes parents, it's so critical, I almost think sometimes parents don't actually like to think about it. It's almost unpleasant to think about sometimes, isn't it? How much impact we actually have as, as parents. Like, you know, some of us are thinking, hey, I didn't want this. You know, I, this, this was an accident. I, we weren't planning on having a big family. And all of a sudden, these kids started coming along. And I wasn't, I, I can't hardly take care of myself, much less raise these kids. And I don't want to be responsible to put all this stuff in them. But what we do is, is critical. And largely what happens in their life uh, we will be responsible for. It will be on us. It will be how we parented and what we did or what we didn't do. But there's also a good side to that too because that means you, in a lot of ways, you're in control of what happens. In a lot of ways, you, you have control over what, what their life looks like and how it turns out. Now, we know there are exceptions. We know that there are great parents uh, and, and not every kid turns out just right. We, we know that. And some of you are going, well, yeah, because I got one kid that turned out really good, and that was, all, that was all me. And then the other one turned out, and I don't know, I guess he got that from his daddy because, you know, that didn't have anything to do with me. Well, no, we know that some kids raised in the same household, similar circumstances. Not all of them turn out the same. We get that. But what we do as parents is critical. It is, it is crucial. And that's why we're in this series. And we actually have done a similar series before, Family Matters 1. Now we're on Family Matters 2, and we're in week 12 of that. And we're talking about uh, the eight milestones that every child needs to have or that we should be working towards um, as they leave our home. We want them to have these things instilled in them. So we've gone through a bunch. Uh, we're not going to list them again, but last week, uh, last two weeks, we spent on work ethic, having habits and uh, a good work ethic and having that in them. And this week, we're going to start talking about a big one, and that is making great strides towards defeating selfishness. This is, this is uh, so important. And now I say making great strides because no one's ever going to defeat selfishness completely. Uh, there's not a person in this room that has complete, completely defeated selfishness, and that ha that's because of what selfishness really is, which we're going to get into in just a minute. Uh, but we have to make great strides. Why? Because I think this is the number one thing that destroys people's lives. I mean, you could, you could start li listing a lot of other things, right? You could, you could list, you know, money problems. You could list drugs and alcohol. You could list a lot of, you know, lying, cheating. It all stems from selfishness. Every bit of it. Every bit of it stems from selfishness. Uh, people that do these types of things, it comes out of selfishness, putting self ahead of their wife, their, their husband, putting selfishness ahead of their, of their kids. So why do we need to make great strides in selfishness? Well, because if they go into the world as a selfish person, they're going to have lots of problems. 
Their marriages are going to fail. They're not going to work very well. Their families are going to fail. They're not going to work very well. And they're going to leave a trail of broken relationships behind them. And every one of us has a tendency to be selfish, but it's sometimes difficult for us to see our own selfishness. So let me give you, I'm going to break this down for you as best I can, because when you say the word selfish, I think to a point our eyes just kind of glaze over like, yeah, okay, yeah, I don't want to be selfish, yeah, yeah, yeah. But let's, let's talk about what it is for a minute. So I'm going to give you a couple examples from my own life, and they're all instances in which I've been unselfish, because I don't want to tell you about anywhere I was selfish. No, I'm kidding. I'm going to actually give you an example of both. So unselfish, like this, just so we can put it in concrete terms. Like one of the things I like to do for my wife is I like to fill her car up with gas. So if I'm driving her car and I notice that it's on, you know, empty or, or close to empty, which for some strange reason seems to be the majority of the time when I get in it. I, I don't understand why that is. Uh, but it seems like it's always on E. Um, even if I could make it home, even if I could make it to where I'm going, even if I have other things to do, especially when it's hot, right? 100 degrees, 100% humidity, and I just imagine my sweet little wife having to get out of the car and stand in the heat and do all that. I go, you know, I'm going to pull, I'm going to take one for the team, and I'm going to fill her car up with gas. Well, when you do something like that, there's a thought process that happens, right? You, your mind is going through a sort of a mental calculation that leads you to go, I'm going to do this even though I don't feel like doing it. Right? And that's where we say, okay, that's unselfish. Well, self, if you got too much selfishness, you might just go, I'm going to pretend I didn't see that. Or you might start thinking, well, this is her fault. You know, she left it on me, her car. I, feel, I got my car. In other words, you could start rationalizing. You could start going through this whole mental process. And what's, what, what you need to understand is that's not actually you going through that mental process. That is your flesh nature that is 100% selfish and 100% ungodlike. That is, you, you think it's you rationalizing, but your flesh is actually talking you through it. You know why? Because your, your flesh, and I'm going to show you through this in a minute from Galatians. That's why I asked you to turn there. But your, your flesh doesn't actually have any decision-making power. This is the uniqueness of humanity. The Bible describes it as spirit flesh. You have the spirit, which when it's been saved is like God. But you still have your flesh nature. You still have your sin nature that wants to do a certain thing. And you are almost like the, 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 the judge, or, or the captain that just sits in the, de the decision maker seat and you get input from the flesh and you get input from the spirit. <laughs> and you hear both sides. <laughs> and you hear both cases. And you go, I think I'm going to go. You're making a very convincing case right now. <laughs> I think I'm going to go with you. Or you go, no, nah, that ain't right. That ain't what the word says. I'm going to do this. And so the more you yield to the flesh, the more selfish you are. The more you yield to the spirit, the more unselfish you are, the more Christ-like. You are. So, like, for example, this morning, I had one of these moments where last night, uh, my wife and I ate some Greek food. We went to Apollo. We picked up some, you know, I always say it wrong, and I hate it when I call it in and they correct me. That's the thing that annoys me when I say hero, and they're like, no, it's gyro. Or I say gyro, and they're, I can't ever get it right. It just gets on my nerves. But anyway, and then she had chicken shawarma or something or other. And so this morning... See, she has to be at church before me, and she made a very grave mistake. She left me at home with chicken shawarma by myself. Now, when I opened the fridge, I saw it sitting there, and I didn't want to make breakfast. I was in a hurry, and I saw it sitting there, and my mind just began to go through all these things that I could do to make that so delicious this morning as my breakfast. Now, she has no idea that when she gets home, her chicken shawarma is gone. She doesn't even know. It's not there. She won't be finding out to this afternoon. She's in the children's department, so we're, I'm safe. Now, what happened? 
Well, see, I had forgot what I was preaching this morning, so I just, no, I'm kidding. But yeah, I, so I ate my food last night, and then I ate her leftovers this morning. And she's going to find out later, what was that? Well, it was a moment of selfishness. I don't have many, but that was this morning. It happened. But what happens? Your mind goes through this mental gymnastics. You're there, and you go, oh, well, here's all the reasons why. And before you know it, you're doing something selfish that you're going to pay for later. So, but that's how it works. That's what selfishness is. If you look it up in the dictionary, it means lacking consideration for others and concerned chiefly with one's own personal profit or pleasure. And see, that's what happened this morning to that poor chicken swarmer. That just lack of consideration, concern with one's own personal pleasure over someone else's. And I look, I repent before you now, I repent to her later. But that happened. But there's a lot, but see, if this begins to dominate your life, and we all have moments like that, but when it begins to dominate your life, then there's one trail, and begin, it begins to, the consequences begin to stack up. It begins to stack up. And for our, for our children, because we're, we're thinking about this for ourselves, but we're also thinking about it for our children. When we see selfishness in our children, we need to understand that can't stay. That can't remain. If it stays, if it remains, they are going to pay dearly for it. And you think, well, they're going to grow out of it. We already hit that real hard in this series. By and large, people do not grow out of anything. They only adapt and they only change the way that they cover it or mask it as they get older. They get a little bit wiser. They get a little bit smarter at how to hide it. But, and it takes different shapes and it takes different forms. But by and large, people do not just grow out of anything. It has to be disciplined out. It has to be trained out. So Galatians 5, let's look at what selfishness really is because sometimes... We use words that the Bible doesn't necessarily use. Selfishness is a word that the Bible uses. But really, here's how it breaks it down. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. He's talking to Christians, and he's saying, You've been saved, and so then, therefore, your spirit's been transformed. Your spirit's been changed. Now, you're the spirit part of you, because remember, man is three parts. Man is spirit, soul, and body. Okay, uh, the soul would be your mind, will, and emotions like that. And then, you know, the psychological part, maybe your body and your spirit. And as part of that package, okay, part of your mind, part of your psyche, part of your body is the flesh nature. And you're never going to get rid of the flesh until you die. When you die, your flesh is going to be dead and your spirit is going on to be with God. But until then, you're going you're gonna to be in a battle with your natural flesh. It doesn't matter how saved you are. You could be oversaved. It doesn't matter. It's still, you're still going to battle with it. You're still going to battle with your flesh. So here's what it says. I say walk by, or you could say walk according to the spirit part of you. Okay, walk, walk according to the Holy Spirit that's in you. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Well, what happens if you don't walk according to the spirit? You will gratify the desires of the flesh. You will, yield, you will end up yielding and giving into the flesh. So he says, I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. Have any of you ever felt like this war was going on on the inside of you? This, this, this war uh, between flesh and Spirit? For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. It doesn't mean that you're not saved. Okay, just because you have wrong desires, bad desires sometimes, wrong thoughts, bad thoughts, that doesn't mean that automatically that you're not saved. He says, 
the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. See, that's what I was talking about earlier. You got flesh, you got spirit, and you're the captain. You're in the middle, and you make the choice. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So that's what uh, selfishness does. Selfishness really is the voice of the flesh. If you really want to know what selfishness is, it's just the loud, clear voice of the flesh. It is your flesh speaking up saying, this is what I want. Yeah, but but this is the right thing to do. I don't care. This is what I want. This is what I want to do. Well, yeah, but I should do this because I know this. And then the flesh begins to help you out. Yeah, but you know, you've done this a few times and you sacrificed here. And so it'll be okay this time. So the flesh just begins to help you out in your decision making. And if you don't learn to put the flesh under, and, you, and this, is, this confuses Christians. I mean, we've talked on it a lot here. But in doing ministry for, you know, since I was a teenager and talking to people, this is always such a revelation to Christians because, they, they, some, because Satan uses this in their life sometimes. And they go, well, if I'm saved, how come I still do bad things sometimes? If I'm saved, how come I still want to do bad things? And Satan loves to come in and say, well, if you were really saved, you wouldn't even want to do that. If you were really saved, you wouldn't even think about that. But you know what? That's not true. Did you know that even Jesus was tempted? And he had Satan in the flesh speaking in his ear at the temptation of Jesus. And what was he tempting? His flesh. He was tempting his flesh. Food, right? Pride. He was tempting those areas in him. Well, you don't have Satan in the flesh, but that doesn't mean that there's still not things being spoken into your ear that are trying to tempt you and get you to make the wrong decision and actually destroy your own life. So as parents, we have, to, we have to improve this. We have to help our kids. Our kids understand this, flesh, spirit. They understand that. And we'll ask them those questions sometimes. Oh, I'm wanting to do this. or Well, you know, this happened to me. And I go, is that your flesh talking or is that your spirit talking? Which part of you right now, when you say, I want to do that, do you mean spirit? Do you mean flesh? Because a lot of times when that word comes out, I, what we really mean is our flesh. Well, I was mistreated. I feel this way. Well, I just want, a lot of times what you mean is my flesh just wants. But if you were to ask your spirit, your spirit would say, no, that ain't right. And, and I'm thinking like God. And actually what I want to do in this moment is humble myself and serve others and put others ahead of myself. So you have both of those things going on inside of you. This is one reason why we fast at the beginning of the year. Because when we, when we fast, you're weakening the flesh and you're strengthening the spirit. And sometimes people their flesh is so loud that they can't even hear their spirit. They don't even know what their spirit wants to do. They, that, that, little, that little voice on the inside of them that, that's trying to tell them the right thing to do and has the word of God, they can't even hear it because they're so used to listening to their flesh and doing every single thing their flesh wants to do. Anytime you say, well, I just feel like you're speaking for the flesh. Every time. When you say, I feel blank, feeling like you're speaking for the flesh. It doesn't even mean it's always wrong. Just, but just know that you're speaking for the flesh. So think of selfishness as a scale of 1 to 100. Okay, selfishness is not, you're either selfish or you're not. A scale of 1 to 100, and, and people are all along that scale, and on any given day, you might be moving up and down that scale. And largely, it has to do with how people are raised. If you were raised in a family where... You, were, you, you had responsibility, you had chores, you were disciplined, you know, you had a 
basically a healthy family. You had other brothers and sisters you had to look out for. You had to share. You're not going to be just, you know, way on this end like a narcissist or something like that because you were raised in a pretty decent family. As a matter of fact, these are terms that the uh, psychological community used. They're not Bible words. The Bible just, again, calls it selfishness and refers to the flesh. And I think that you have to have that understanding first. But in the psychological community... Basically, if it's a scale of 1 to 100, somewhere along that scale, they're going to say, all right, you are no longer just a normal selfish person. You have transitioned to a narcissist. You are now like a narcissist, okay? And people love to throw that term around. I hear it all the time as a pastor. People tell me that about their spouse. They come in, I live with a narcissist. Well, I don't know. Percentage-wise, I don't think there's actually that many because I hear it all the time. But maybe it's just someone who's really selfish. I live with a narcissist. Okay, well, then if you keep on that scale then it's, at some point you're going to end up at psychopath, right? <laughs> you just, you're a total psychopath. That's 100 on the scale. One to 100 psychopath, that's like 95 to 100, right in there, that, that range. Now, when I was thinking about this and studying for this uh, sermon, I, I read a few things, read some articles, listened to a few psychologists. So I'm basically like a doctor now at this point, but uh, so you can trust me. No, I'm kidding. I'll just tell you what they said. One psychologist I actually thought this was really funny. The person asked them, they said, uh, they said, so how many narcissists do you think there are in our, in our society? And they said, oh, it's, it'd be very hard to say, but maybe like 10 to 15% of our society in America would be uh, clinically diagnosed as narcissistic. And they, they were in L.A., and so the person asked, they said, well, well, how many narcissists do you think in L.A.? And they said, oh, it'd be way over 50%. So I... I just thought that was great. but <laughs> So why is this so important? Well, and I was looking at this, and one psychologist said that from their decades of experience of counseling people, helping people, you know, therapy, everything under the sun that they know to do, from their decades of experience, that 70% of narcissists will never see any change. I was like, man, that's kind of discouraging. Like, and, and they were saying this from experience. They're like, I'm just telling you from my experience and talking to others, 70% of people that have reached that number on the scale, whatever that is, from 1 to 100, 70% of people that have reached that level of narcissism will never change. And there's a lot of reasons for that. They said the other 30% will only see moderate results uh, from therapy. Now, if you take a narcissist who's totally lost and they get born again and, and they receive salvation and they begin to learn about flesh spirit and yielding to the spirit over the flesh, I imagine that, that that could be different for them. But here's the point, that some things that our children walk away with out of our home may be with them for life. And that's why it's so important what we do. It's so important how we train them because some of the, when a child, uh, those formative years and this is a good thing, too. God created it this way on purpose. But those things become concrete in them. If you put your values and your morals and you put work ethic and you put generosity and you put those things in them, guess what? It's not easy for them to walk away from that. That's why the Bible says train a child in the way they should go and it will not depart from them. Why? Because it's solidified. It's become concrete in them. And even if they go wayward and they, they yield to sin and they get off in the world, they're going to come back to those values that were just made like concrete in their lives. But on the other hand, if they were raised and allowed to be selfish, thoughtless, think of only themselves, not be disciplined, not, sh not share, 
those types of things. Guess what? That's being solidified in them, and it's very difficult for them to walk away. And, and why am I saying that? Because as a church, really, we have, we have a lot of goals and a, a lot of things that we're trying to do. But one of the big things we're trying to do is life change. Right? We're, we're trying to help people get their life on the right track. And this is what we have fi- found out. The number one easiest and best way to change someone's life is to do it when they're young. That's why we focus so much on children's ministry. That's why we focus so much on youth ministry. Because if a child can get their life right when they're young and begin to form those habits and let that be part of their character, it will follow them the rest of their life. I'm going to say this. We have probably ten times a better chance of changing lives when they're kids and when they're youth than we do with adults. Now, I love adults. I'm in here preaching to adults this morning. I'm just going to tell you, though, flat out, it's way harder to change an adult than it is to change a child or a teenager. That's why what we do as parents is so important. Any therapist, any counselor will tell you that. I I actually heard someone from a counselor just this week that said, I do not counsel adults anymore. (laughs) I only counsel kids and youth because adults don't change. Now, I haven't reached that point. I hadn't given up on that, but I'm just saying that's... That's the mindset, and we all know that. It's much harder. I guess we say you can't teach an old dog new tricks type thing. You know, we got a lot of sayings for that. But bottom line, it's much harder to change uh, an adult. It can happen, but it takes a tremendous amount of work because they've got so much of that concrete that has to be sledgehammered and broke up for any real change to happen. So it's better to do it when they're young, and that's why this series is so important. Now, if you've already raised kids or your kids are older, I get it. This can create... Uh, regret, and you go, well, I should have done this. But, you know, there's a lot of people in here that are still in the process. We're in the process of raising kids. So when you see selfishness in their life, you must confront it. You must attack it. And if you don't, their spouse, their future family is going to pay the price for your neglect. One interesting thing about this is that the Bible tells us that in the last days, selfishness is going to increase. 1 Timothy, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul said, But understand this, that in the last days there will come difficult times for people will be lovers of self. And, and what he's saying, and he, he goes on to list a bunch of other things, but what, he, what he's saying is this will be more, uh, more, you know, I guess worse than it is even now, because it's not like Paul didn't have selfish people back then. He's saying in the last days, it's going to get worse. In the last days, the level of selfishness and the, and the way that people love themselves and focus on selves is going to increase. And if I look at our society today and I go, why would that happen on a, on a large scale? Why would that occur? And so then I look at America, at least, and I look at our uh, society today, I could look at a few things. I mean, what about social media? Now, I'm not, this is not an anti-social media you know, message, anything like that. Uh, and if you've been coming for a long time, you might think that, that I don't like social media. Well, and you'd be partially right. I don't really like it. But, but, but just, I don't mind it either. And here's the thing with social media, though. It's really what social media is in large part, if we just were honest, it's just self-exaltation. It, it's taking me and filming me, photographing me, putting it out there for everyone else to like and click and, and share and, and write you little notes about, oh, you look so pretty today. and Man, I thought we were going to have more fun with this. Y'all are just looking at me like, why did I come to church today to hear about this? Well, if you think about 
what would cause a generation, what would cause a, a, a whole generation to become lovers of self, because that's what he says is going to happen in the last days, I'm just thinking about what could cause that? What could happen to that? Am I saying social media by itself? No, but I do think it has an impact because it's, it's unlike anything that we've ever experienced before where we all have our each little individual platforms to go, look at me. Look how smart I am. Look how unique I am. Look how accomplished I am. Look at my degree. Look at my job. Look at my work. Look at my pets. Look at my charity. Look at everything I do. Look at my vacations. Look at my piece of pie that I'm having for dinner. I mean, it's just on and on. And what does that do? Well, that's just it's self-exaltation. It's feeding something. I'll tell you what it's feeding. It's feeding the flesh. And you say, man, I, you know, this is, I can't believe we're talking about social media. Well, I'm just going to keep on it for that reason then, you know, if you don't like it that much. But think about it for our kids, though. It's one thing for an adult. But kids are not emotionally as mature as adults are. And it's been shown how, how dangerous this is for, for a child. And if you look at the generation coming up, I think I've given you these statistics before. What was it, like 50% of uh, Generation Z said they wanted to be social media influencers? Like that's their whole goal and dream in life? And I'm thinking, there's not that many, there's not that many people that have that important of something to say that need to be social media influencers before you've ever even actually done anything in your life. Man, it's quiet in this Baptist church. I'm telling you, whew, it's hot in here, something. I need to move on. But, but what would cause that level of selfishness in the last days? I, I, I think that's part of it. I think that's one of it. What else could we look at? Well, how about constant 24-7 access to unlimited entertainment and pleasure? This is another thing. Because think about the flesh and how it's wired. Feed me, give me, serve me, pleasure me. That's the flesh, 24-7. It's like a recording that never stops. Give me, give me, and no matter how much you give it, how much you feed it, how much you soothe it, how much you entertain it, it just wants more. It's like a black hole. That's the flesh nature. That's the sin nature. So constant 24-7 access to unlimited entertainment and pleasure. When we were growing up, and some of you are older than me, you wanted to rent a movie, you had to go down to Blockbuster. And it took a little effort. You had to get out of your pajamas. You had to go down the street, get in your car. You had to pick, spend time picking out the movie. Now it's just click. And after that episode's over, click. And after that episode's over, click. And after that series is over, click. It's just 20, it's like a little rat on cocaine. Just, you know, just, 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 you just keep hitting the button, keep hitting the button. Does that have an effect on selfishness? Yes, it does. Because you're just serving self 24-7. Maybe when we should be, you know, serving others, engaging with our family, doing something productive. I, look, I'm not against any of this stuff. I'm just saying if, if, we, if it goes off the rails, then you can see how it can cause a problem. Does constant 24-7 access to unlimited entertainment and pleasure in our society have an effect on selfishness? Yes, it does. Yes, it does, because we're so used to serving self. And then food, same, same way. You know, oh, man, we can, now we just have it delivered to the door. Again, click, cheeseburger, click, pizza, click, Grubhub, click, whatever. Just deliver me food, deliver me entertainment. You know, just we're sitting on the couch. We're going to blow up 400 pounds. Just, you know, feed me entertainment, food. How far is it going to get? How bad is it going to go? And then we're documenting the whole thing, picture, selfie, putting it on social media. It's going to get bad, I'm telling you. No, I'm just kidding. That's maybe like the worst end or the worst version of where it could go. But So in the, we're in the process right now of creating a very individualistic society. 
where people entertain themselves, feed them. It's all about them and their little world and just what they have going on. And we're not very communal. We're not community-minded. A lot of people don't even come to church anymore. They just want to watch online. I'm not against watching online. We have a lot of people that watch online every week. But it falls right into this, this direction that we're moving. And all I'm saying to you is this. Your children are being raised in that environment. They're being raised in that environment. And if you're not careful, they're going to turn out to be very selfish people. And there are going to be big consequences because of that. Almost every single marriage problem is a selfishness problem. And, and, and people ask, well, what's the number one problem in marriage? Selfishness. And anything else you name is just a fruit of the root, which is selfishness. Because if you have two people that are putting the other person ahead of themselves, you really can't have a marriage problem. When you have two people that are serving one another and count the other as more significant than myself, it's very difficult to have a marriage problem. What you have is the opposite. When you have marriage problems, what you have is the opposite. You have two people that consider their needs, their thoughts, their wants, their desires ahead of the other person. And when you have that, you're going to have marriage problems. So for our children, that's why we begin to work on this now. We begin to teach them, you got to think about others. And, and I hear this from parents all the time. This is one of the notorious things that I hear from parents all the time. Is so their, their child is doing something that they know isn't good, and they say this, oh, yeah, but it doesn't really bother me. Well, here's the problem. It, it, that's a selfish thinking because it's not about whether it bothers you or not. It's about is it good for them and what's it going to cause them down the road. It doesn't matter if it bothers you. You know, oh, them throwing a fit on the floor and, you know, slinging the fit. Oh, that doesn't bother me. Well, you're either something wrong with you or uh, it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter if it doesn't bother you. It's going to bother a lot of other people. It's going to bother their future spouse, their future boss. It's going to bother a lot of other people. And so people think, well, you know, it doesn't bother me. Uh, oh, it doesn't bother me. I don't mind cleaning the kitchen every night. I don't mind that they sit on the couch and eat potato chips, you know, while I clean the kitchen or while I mow the grass. That doesn't bother me. I don't mind doing it. I like, I like serving them. Yeah, but you're not helping them. You're not helping them. That's not good for them. And it's, it's actually negligent on our part if we do that because we're missing opportunities where they need to learn Mom is not a servant. Mom is not a slave. Dad's not a servant. Well, they need to learn how the dishes get magically put in the cabinet. They need to learn how the food magically gets put on the table and the clothes magically get washed and folded and put in their drawer. They need to learn like someone's doing that. And how can they ever be thankful for it and appreciative of it if they don't partake in the process? And look, I've told you, I got to tell you this every week. We're not the golden family. We're not the perfect family. We don't have all of this right. We've got areas we need to change. My kids are not perfect, okay? We're not perfect parents. We're all in this together. This is all of us thinking about this. So don't, don't think I'm up here like, yeah, this, we're perfect at it, and you're not. Not at all. We, we constantly are identifying areas in our life, in our parenting that needs adjusting, in our kids that need adjusting. We're all, you know, in this together, but yeah, it doesn't, it's not if it bothers you, it's is this going to be good for them? And I, I constantly think about this with my kids when I see them interact with one another or a way that they treat me or the way they treat their mom. And I go, is that going to, what they just did, what they just said, is that going to be good for their marriage? And if, I, and if I translate it to that term and go, okay, what they just did or how they just treated her, if they do that to their spouse, is that going to be a problem in marriage? And if it is, I, we got to deal with it. 
Because that's what I'm. That's what we're moving towards, right? That's the. That's a big part of my job. My my son will be uh, 15 in this uh, calendar year. In this uh, year, and so I'm thinking, man, I have three years left. I have three years to to before he graduates and getting these things in him. And uh, sometimes it feels hopeless, but you know, you just you keep working and you you do what you got to do. So what creates? What should we look for? What creates extreme selfishness? Okay, one. One psychologist said that it's the extremes of parenting, meaning either very abusive, very traumatic, or on the other end, over-nurture, spoiled, no, no discipline, can't do anything wrong, always told how great you are, and just that over-nurture. Both of those end up creating uh, very narcissistic, selfish people. So if they're pretty much raised in a halfway decent family. They're going to be somewhere in that 1 to 100 scale, you know, kind of in the middle. But it's something that we have to look at and identify and work on as parents. Philippians 2, 3 tells us this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In other words, I love this because everything we do has a motive. There's a reason why you do it. And that's what he's identifying here. He says, do nothing in your life, do absolutely nothing from or out of selfish ambition. And what we're good at as humans is judging the the action itself. And we go, well, that was good. They gave that or they did that or they sacrificed that. But the Bible has a different way of looking at it. It goes, what makes it good or bad is the motive with which it was done with. So two people could give away lots of money. One of them could be accepted before God, and the other one could be rejected all based on the motive. So the, the action is not what's important. It's the motive with which why you're doing it. If you're doing something because you want to be seen, you want to be appreciated, you want to be congratulated, or there's some benefit you're going to get in return, the motive is still selfishness. And that's still going to have an, that's going to have an effect in your life. So what Paul says here... Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Look, this one verse right here is a marriage saver. This one verse right here is a marriage saver. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. If, if this is how marriages operate, they will succeed. If they do not, they, they will not. But here we get another key look into what selfishness actually is. It has a lot to do with pride. Selfishness and pride go hand in hand. And this is why he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, but instead in humility. So you have selfish ambition and you have humility. So... Pride and selfishness go hand in hand. If I think very highly of myself, then and, and, I, and I am very arrogant, then that's going to translate itself in selfishness in my life. I'm going to believe that I should be served, that my opinions are better than everybody else's, and that when there's a conversation going on, I'm going to be the one to do all the talking because I'm me, and I have a lot of important things to say, and you know, on and on like that. So selfishness and humility, selfishness and pride, they go hand in hand. It's very difficult to be humble and selfish because when you are humble and you have humility, you count others as very significant. 
Then he gives us the example of Christ. He continues, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here we get another clue into selfishness that if we want to really know what is the opposite of selfishness it's love it's the God kind of love so if you look at 1 Corinthians 13 which is where we're going to go now you're going to see that both of these passages we just read on selfishness uh, they have to do with motive so the first one says selfish ambition comes out of pride and I want you to look at this one, 1 Corinthians 13, that the love that he's talking about here, he's going to address motive first. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. So you're telling me I can do this good thing that he's talking about, but I can do it and it not be in love. Yes, he says your motive can be something else. He goes on, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. So he says you can do all those things and not be love that's motivating you. It could just be selfishness. It could just be selfishness. He says if I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. He says here that a person could give up their body to be burned and sacrificed and it not even be about love. It could just be about their memory, their legacy. It could be about getting, you know, being famous, whatever. It could be something else. So he says love is the antidote. Now going back to our kids, going back to our kids, when we are seeing them interact with each other, when they, we're seeing them interact with us, these are the types of questions we have to be asking ourselves and things we have to be thinking about. What is that coming out of? What they just said, what they just did, how they just treated, what is that coming out of, and how do I, how do I deal with it? And what our goal is to just not to just get them to not be selfish, our goal is to get them to walk in the God kind of love and to model that before them. What does that love look like? How does that love uh, work in a marriage? How does it work in a family? How does, it, how does it work in a community of believers? All of that should be being talked about and modeled for them. With us, we have a lot of these types of conversations with our kids uh, where we, we walk them through our thought process. In other words, we may have an experience in our family where we had to make a tough decision. And rather than just keep them on the outside at their age, and this is all, you know, a lot of the things we talk about are age appropriate, but we, we walk them through the process, and, I'll, and, and we'll walk them through. Well, see, at first we were thinking this, and then we thought, you know, that's not really love. We can't really handle that that way. Here's this, and we don't want to handle that way because God's shown us mercy in many a case, so we don't want to do this that way. So we walk them through it, we talk them through it, why? Because we're not just living life, but we're training adults. And if they're going to be like us and they're going to have our values, then they need to be right alongside us in the process hearing, why did we do that? Why did we not do this? Why did we make that decision? And they, they hear us discuss it and talk about it so that they, they, uh, they adopt our values. A lot of times, sometimes parents, we just tell them, 
you know, we almost push them to the side, and it's almost like, well, yeah, just do what I tell you to do. Why? Well, because I said so. But that doesn't really help build that strong value that we're talking about, because I said so. What that may teach them is you have to listen when we speak, and that's good. But you're not actually helping them understand values and morals and and things that they need to adopt on on their own by saying, because I told you so, it may get them to do the right thing, but it may not help them understand the thing that you want them to understand. And when you're not there telling them, because I told you so, are they going to still make that right decision? Not if they don't have those values in their, in their own heart and as part of their own character. So the first part of this, this is a lot of people refer to this as the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. The first part of it, he talks really about love needing to be the motive for everything you do. Is love the motive of why you go to work every day? You see, that, that, that for a lot of people is very foreign. They think, no, I go to, I go to, I go to work to make money, and uh, I, you know, I want to make money, and then I want to provide for my family and all that. Well, love can be the motive for that. First of all, love for God. I was put on this planet for a reason. Before I'm a a worker or an employee or whatever I am, an owner, before I'm any of those things, I'm a son of God, daughter of God, servant of God. That's why I'm living today. So even even going to work today, I go in service of God. See, the motive motive is crucial. Then when I'm there, I I can work out of love and service for my boss. In other words, you have a job to do. I want to help you. I want to support you. I want to make you look good. I want to make you successful. So I can do that out of love for you. I can, I can work and be there out of love for my, my fellow employees and looking out for them and thinking about, hey, I want to be a team player and help you do your job well and help you succeed well. How many of you know that's kind of foreign in the workplace? But for Christians, this ought to be the norm. Every day we wake up, we got to ask ourselves, what's the motive? Am I, am I going to do what I'm going to do today out of and motivated and driven by love. And, and listen, it doesn't matter who you are. You have to remind yourself of this almost every morning. Otherwise, you just go on cruise control. So the motive of why we do everything is, is critical. He addresses that first. Then he begins to tell us what the God kind of love looks like. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. Why is he, why is he giving us these road markers so that we can look at our own life and examine our own life and go, well, if I'm being impatient and I'm not being kind, then I can already tell you I'm not in love. I'm not, I'm not walking in the God kind of love, and I need to make an adjustment and get back in the God kind of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Can you see why these verses are marriage savers? It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So you can see right here from this passage that when you're walking in the God kind of love, you can endure anything. You can go through anything. Because look at the last verse, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. One of the uh, parts of this verse that says it in another translation that my wife and I were talking about recently was this idea that love holds no record of wrong. Think about that. 
And she was asking me about something that happened. And she was saying, uh, well, why don't you talk to me about this, you know, about this thing that happened. And I said, well, I don't really want to, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really want to talk about it. And she said, well, yeah, but it'd do you good to talk about it. I said, not really. Uh, I understand the idea of, you know, not bottling things and all that. I understand the idea. But, but see, I'm, what I'm meditating on right now is that love holds no record of wrong. And so by, by continuing to think about it and meditate on it and talk about it, it's actually establishing a record of wrong. <laughs> it, it's helping me talk through all the ways that this was wrong or this was done wrong to me or this was said. It's helping me establish that. So in this instance, I'm not saying this is right for every instance, but in this instance, I said, no, I don't, I don't want to talk about it because I'm actually fine right now. And I, I'm not, I've, I've already forgiven this person. It's not a big deal. And I'm holding no record of wrong. And I'm trying to walk in love and do that. So this is a big, uh, this is a big piece. This is something that we're not going to unpack in one sermon. This whole, these six verses, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 6, it needs to be looked at in the light of our parenting, okay? It needs to be looked at in, are our kids conforming to this? Now, your kids, you need the help of God in this. You need your kids to encounter God, and you need your kids to get the love of God on the inside of them so that they can walk in this kind of love. They need to have the love of God on the inside of them. That's why bring them, bring them to church. Let them be part of youth. Let them be part of youth camp. Let them experience God, because the more God changes their heart, the easier it's going to be for them to walk in this. But almost this is a uh, standard, certainly that we hold our own selves to, but that we can look at our kids and go, all right, how are they doing in their love walk? Because if they're failing in all these ways, then they're, they're moving towards selfishness, not love. So one of the main, I guess you'd say, gifts that you could give your kids as they leave your home is helping them make great strides in defeating selfishness. You're not going to defeat it altogether. But we want to help them move in this direction so that as they mature and as they get married and as they start raising their own families, this isn't something that just constantly trips them up. And I'll, I'll kind of close with this and leave you with this. How many of you remember, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you when you first got married, you discovered how selfish you still really were? Like when I was single... I thought, lived, and acted a certain way, and you thought, yeah, I'm, I'm great, you know, I'm not a selfish person. And then you get married, and you have to live with someone else, and you have to start thinking about someone else a lot. And this is why when someone's been single for a really long time, it's hard for them to get married sometimes. Sometimes they have a hard time because they've been single for so long, and they've been living selfish for so long, they don't realize how much giving and sacrifice is involved in marriage. So then you get married, and you realize, man, I remember thinking that. I remember waking up one day and kind of thinking, man, I think, uh, I, think I still have a lot of selfishness here in my, in my life that I got to deal with. But, you know, this is helping me. Marriage is helping me. It's good for me. And my wife and I were married for five years before we had kids. And then I remember when we had that first little baby. And then I had the thought again. I said, huh, I didn't realize how selfish I still was. <laughs> I thought my wife had helped me with that. I, uh, I still have a little bit of that selfishness. And then you have kid number two, and you go, huh, all right, still some of that in there. And th that's, that's, that's life. That's what happens. And so many of us don't realize how much selfishness we still have. And sometimes it takes events or it takes situations to actually show and reveal how much of this that is still in there. And every now and then, if you're halfway self-aware, you'll get a little glimpse, and you'll go, huh, 
That was kind of selfish. You know, like when I ate that chicken shawarma this morning. I just was so disappointed in myself. I, you know? But every now and then you get a little glimpse and you go, man, that was, that was selfish. And then you can work on it and you can adjust it. Well, same thing with your kids. You see things happen. Don't just be hopeless about it and go, man, they're the most selfish people ever. I don't know how I could ever change them. They're just so selfish. You know, they're, they're just almost demon-possessed, you know, those kids. Well, yeah, but you got to work every day. And you got you to make strides towards it. And you got you to put effort towards it. And again, let me just say, this is our job, okay, as parents. This is our job. No one else is going to do it. The school's not going to do it. The church is not going to do it. All these places can assist, but it's parents. It's our responsibility to do this and help our kids with this. Amen? 